The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Byzantine Romans encounter the murder hornet Goss and the honey badger Newtonian laws of gravity. Hardcover Sunrise comes early, plus we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. When the late great science fiction legend Jerry Pornell passed away, he left an almost completed manuscript for the next book in the Janissary series. Jerry Pornell called that book Mamelukes. Well, with 80% of it done and a clear outline for completion, his son Philip Pornell decided to take up the task of completing it, along with Honor Harrington creator David Weber. We talked with David Weber and Philip Pornell about completing the book, about the work of Jerry Pornell, and about this great science fiction adventure novel, Mamelukes. This is the first of a several-part interview. Plus more David Weber greatness as we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The June new hardcovers and trade paperbacks are stampeding into the light of existence itself. And boy, do they look grand. First, there's Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell, with contributions by David Weber and Philip Pornell. It's been 13 long years since Rick Galloway was shanghaied and carted away by a flying saucer to the planet Tran, where humans were administrators and slaves of a civilization that was kept at about Renaissance level. Now things are about to change again. New starmen have arrived on Tran with dangerous gifts and star weapons, none have faced before. Rick Galloway's mission on Tran is about to be turned on its head, but Rick is the one guy that's ready for it. By the way, Mamelukes is a big old book with a great naval battle in it, and we highly recommend it for great summer reading, especially if you want to take a big old book on vacation. Also out in June is a new Arcane America series novel. This one is all about Ben Franklin. The book is called Collar of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Eitan Kalin. When Halley's Comet is destroyed in a magical battle, a portion of the comet strikes Earth with disastrous and fantastical results because magic is now real and creatures from folklore spring to life on the American continent. And who does the magically charged New World turn to for help? None other than the father of electricity himself, Benjamin Franklin. And we have a great new short story anthology out in June. That book is Give Me Liberty Con, edited by Christopher Woods and TKF, that is Tony Weisskopf. Join David Weber, Larry Correa, David Drake, and 12 other, Timothy Zahn's in this one, by the way, and 12 other best-selling authors as they pay their respects to their devoted fans and to a lost friend. A portion of the sales will fund a scholarship set up in the name of superfan TVA engineer and LibertyCon founder Timothy Uncle Timmy Bolgio. 
It's a great anthology. Everybody did great stories for it. And it's all done for a worthy cause and a great memorial for Tim Bolgio. Hey, I also want to remind you, don't forget our great offerings from the month just ended. That is May. And give them some love because they had to undergo some delivery channel backroads. You know, they fought their way to the booksellers, but they are there now. Find these books. Um, they're great stuff. 11th Gate by Nancy Cress, Penrick's Travels by Lois McMaster Bujold, and The Shaman of Carries by Eric Flint and Dave Freer. They are now available. Give them some special love if you can. And do the same for the June new hardcovers and trade paperbacks. These are Give Me Liberty Con, edited by Christopher Woods and TKF Weiskopf. Caller of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Eitan Kalen, and Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell, with contributions from David Weber and Philip Pornell. This is part one of a multi-part interview with Philip Pornell and David Weber discussing Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. Welcome, David Weber and Philip Pornell to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi, how are you? Good afternoon. We're doing all right, considering. Um, David Weber, as uh, most everyone knows, is um, has got about 8 million copies of his books in print, 30 titles, probably more on the New York Times bestseller list by now. Um, creator of the uh, Honor Harrington series, the, the that Oath of Swords fantasy series, um, multiverse series, just lots and lots of uh, stuff out from Bain and elsewhere. Um, and what was the last thing? Oh, you know, the, uh, the next thing that's going to be up from David is going to be the Valkyrie Protocol, which is the, um, the sequel to the Gordian Protocol, which he's been doing with Jacob Hollow. We'll hope to talk about that soon, too. Um, Philip Pornell is, um, Philip, tell me, uh, I was, I was struggling to find your bio and, uh, maybe you could just fill me in on that. Uh, sure. So, uh, I spent 26 years in the, uh, Navy, uh, as a surface warfare officer, meaning I drove and fought ships. Uh, I also was, uh, have the uh, privilege of going to the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, got a master's degree in operations analysis, which I used uh, when I had alternating tours between the Pentagon and the fleet. Um, so in the fleet, I served on cruisers, destroyers, amphibious ships, and uh, high-speed vessel, experimental high-speed vessel. And then on, in the Pentagon, I served on the Navy staff, and then on the uh, OSD uh, um, capabilities assessment uh, program evaluation uh, and also uh, three year, or five years at the Austin Assessment, um, where I was doing uh, wargaming, modeling simulation, and other types of analysis. And um, you're at, what is net assessment anyway? So net assessment is the uh, Secretary of Defense's uh, internal think tank and tasked with looking out 30 years into the future and uh, diagnosing what the future uh, security environment would, would be. Um, it had a legendary uh, director 
Mr. Marshall, uh, Mr. Andrew Marshall, uh, who led it for several years before he retired and unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and he was the one who identified when the Soviet Union was going to fall and why and identified uh, China as the uh, uh, probable uh, threat after that. So he was very prescient and uh, uh, in many respects, the task of the Austin assessment is to write really hard science fiction. And they've done uh, remarkably well in terms of um, diagnosing future security environments. And one of the key tools we uh, use there was uh, wargaming. It sounds like super cool. How how long were you there? I was there for five years uh, until I retired from the Navy. And then for the last uh, uh, three and a half years, I've been uh, a, a contractor. I was originally with a company called Launcher Strategy Group, working through the Austin Assessment. And now I'm at a company called uh, Group W, uh, where I do uh, analysis and wargaming. That's cool. You are also, um, and what we, what we want to talk about today is, is uh, a new book, which is out of booksellers everywhere. This is Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell, who was your dad. Um, and, you know, Jerry Pornell was, a, was one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time, um, master of military science fiction, creator of the, the Falkenberg series and um, Janus series, Exiles to Glory, High Justice. These are things that Bain put out, King David's Spaceship, um, and uh, had those great bestsellers with Larry Niven, Lucifer's Hammer, The Moat in God's Eye, Footfall. Um, in addition to that, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast, Jerry, you and uh, I and your brother before in John Carr. Um, Jerry Pornell, Dr. Jerry Pornell was a polymath who held advanced degrees in psychology, statistics, engineering, political science. And all of these fields, he, you know, it wasn't just uh, show degrees. I mean, he was also actively involved in all of this as well. So um, an amazing man. And um, so there was a manuscript when he passed away. Um, there, was, there were several, I think. Uh, but this is, this is the thing that he was uh, just about done with. Can you, let's talk about that before we dive into the story and such. Um, what How'd you find this? What happened? How do we know this was here? So, uh, Dad had been working on Mamelukes for several years, and he, of course, had some uh, health issues over the years. He, there was a growth in his head. I think it was cancer, but we don't never know for certain. And uh, they had to treat it with uh, um, hard radiation to uh, uh, remove it. And that moved him from the uh, superhuman status where he would churn out all this work, not only the books, but the... Uh, uh, view from Chaos Manor and all the other uh, work he did, and it made him merely human. So it's slowed him down uh, by comparison considerably. And then uh, later he had a stroke. So um, after he'd recovered from the stroke, he had gone back into trying to finish uh, uh, Mamelukes. And uh, I'd had many conversations with him over the years about uh, you know what he was working on and where he wanted to go and. He, you know, and like many of his stories, or many of the other stories in the Janissary series, it was the book that just couldn't be finished. There was just so many opportunities, and it just kept expanding. So he he assessed that the book was about eighty percent done, and then unfortunately uh, uh, he passed away, and uh, the book that um, 
you know, was was initially unfinished, uh, but it was 80% done. So I, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a great story and it needed to be finished. And so uh, I talked to Tony uh, 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 Weisskopf and said, I, you know, I'd like to help uh, finish this, but uh, I'm obviously going to need some help. And uh, uh, I think uh, David can can uh, finish out the story from that perspective. Well, I was uh, I was in your offices in North Carolina uh, for a convention, uh, I guess two or three years ago now, um, and uh, Tony and I were talking, and I said, you know, there, are, I'm getting to a point in life where it is obvious that I am not going to have enough time to finish all of the storylines that, that I wanted to tell. And she was like, yeah, you're not going to live forever. I'm like, thank you, Tony. You make me feel so much better. Um, but um, I, we were talking about unfinished storylines. And I said, you know, there are two that I always wanted to actually be involved with. And one of them was uh, Piper's Lord Calvin. And I said, the other was Jerry's, Jerry's Janissary series. And she said, oh, you, you would have liked to have worked in the Janissary's universe? And I said, yeah. She said, Aha, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> and so that's how I got um, involved. Um, and for me, it was very, very much um, a labor of love. Um, I read these books uh, when they came out, um, and I loved them then. Um, the first one came out while I was uh, in graduate school, um, and uh, it was just and I was and I was specializing in uh, military and diplomatic history. So I mean, it was right in my wheelhouse for for uh, the problems that Rick was facing after he got uh, to Tran. Um, so let's put it this way nobody had to draft me for this project i was i was oh yeah i i i want to be uh involved in this and i have to say that uh looking at the material that uh jerry had already completed uh it was very clear i think phil i i feel like i think you'll back me up on this it was very clear where he wanted to go uh, with the storyline um, and how he wanted uh, the elements with Rick and and the other uh, uh, baseline characters to play out. Um, and I just thought getting there was was so cool. Uh, I've done colla- I've done a lot of collaborations. This was the first time that I was collaborating with one of the guys who was my go-to guy for science fiction when I was in in college and with another live writer Phil and the process was just really uh, fascinating to me uh, for, for both from the storytelling perspective and from the the process, the procedural perspective, uh, it was a very different experience for me, and I enjoyed it a lot. I, I I like to think that Phil and I did Jerry justice 
uh, on the parts of it that we had to, to fill in. But I will say this, and I realize that given my association with the books, people might take this with a grain of salt, but this is a damn good book. It is a good book in a great series. Um, and the fact that it still has the legs to find people who are readers of the original books when it's been, what, 25 years, more, since the last one before this came out, that speaks, I think, to the, the, uh, the quality of the original storyline. Um, and it was a bunch of fun. To do this, it really was. It was it was one of my one of my ambitions that I had had before I was ever a published science fiction writer myself uh, was to somehow get involved in in making this storyline move on and to actually have had that opportunity. Um, that was a gift. That was a genuine gift. Yeah. Well, we're we're the well we're, we're um, attributions the, on the cover. We're um, the Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell and with contributions by David Weber and Philip Pornell. Um, is it, that's um, the way y'all wanted it, and that's it, the way the process actually works, right? Just a little bit more, maybe on the process of how you brought it into Harbor. You brought it into Harbor. Well, so I go ahead, Phil. So I, I had started an initial um, draft of it and, um, or, you know, I took the draft that, da- that Dad had and saw the arc of where he wanted things to go. And I just took looked at it from a uh, um, both Machiavellian and, uh, uh, you know, uh, wartime philosopher's perspective of how you would get the power you need to accomplish these different uh, things. So I just drew this uh, um, arc out. Uh, but then there was this uh, very um, obvious point of, of where uh, the story needed to climax in terms of a, of, a, of a major battle. And so I kind of paired some of the stuff back, although that's still in the back pocket, um, but, you know, paired back to this uh, uh, major battle and then looked at all the other elements around it. Uh, there's a great book called, uh, you know, Battles That Change History uh, that if you've never read, I, I, I recommend. And I was kind of using that kind of perspective of how would um, these events and particularly this battle shape not only events on Tran, but in the larger uh, uh, perspective. And then um, I think David kind of enhanced that further, David. Um, yeah, it's okay. It was pretty clear from now, Phil, Phil had some information that I didn't have while we were working uh, on the book about where his dad was planning to go with some of the off trans storyline. So I was focused in this process primarily on tran. And one of the things that fascinated were, you know, pleasing to me is that with that focus, I think we still wound up really well positioned on the, the elements happening off Tran that, that I did, hadn't been fully fully filled in on uh, at that point. I think we're in a good place to go in those directions. But the there's there's a huge uh, 
naval battle, the first naval battle on Tran, I think, that we've seen um, as, the, as the, uh, the, the climactic action uh, of the book. Um, and I like naval battles. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just really like naval battles. Uh, so that was like, okay, fine, we can do this. You know, I was. Uh, we had fewer of the mechanics of for the battle section, uh, the, the the big climactic battle at the end of the book, uh, than we had for the earlier engagements, and then we had for the the uh, I guess what you would call the geopolitics in it, because that I think was the 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 nugget that Jerry was. That was the final thing that he had to do, that he had to, to bring in to make the book work. Um, and so that's where, that's really where Phil and I picked up and inserted the most material. Not in, not so much in how the battle came out or, or what its implications for the storyline were. That was pretty much baked in before we started on the actual combat itself. But making the the uh, the the mechanism of the fight and the 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 consequences to the characters gel with where Jerry was taking this. That's so, really, I think. Yeah, yeah so, I, I really think yeah. that's probably the area where Phil and I had by far the most input into the book. And one of the things that struck me is that Jerry had given us the what he called the moral of the work. Um, and Phil had written uh, a scene uh, revolving around that that I loved, but that I I felt that we had to we had to we had we had to move. And the way the battle finally came together made the perfect place to put what Phil had done and make it just absolutely bring home, I think, the, 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 the moral concept and character growth that Jerry had had in mind. I, I just, it was, when, when, you, when, you're, when you're in the groove with a story that you're telling, it's kind of like watching a professional baseball player who's just really got that swing down, you know. It's just like if he if he makes contact, that ball's going into the outfield, you know, whatever. And that was almost, Phil, where we were at the end of that whole battle scene. I mean, just everything, just boom, there it was. Um, and I hope readers are going to have some of the same the same. Oh my God, that worked! Uh, feeling that I did when we got done putting that all together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that this is what do you call that battle? It's like the Battle of Nicaeus or something like that. That's the big climactic battle. The, I'm sure that's what it will ultimately be called. It will be ultimately called that. And everybody who was there in it will call it. Uh, Phil, check me on this. I think everybody who was there in it will call it the Howling Madness. <laughs> yes, uh, or the mail or the maelstrom. Uh, yeah, that would work uh, too. That would work too. It's not yeah. just uh, man versus man; it's man versus nature. Uh, Tran is not a very nice place to live, and uh, 
you see it at its um, uh, most active. Uh, and for for a world in which people still believe in gods, I think some people are going to come out of that battle uh, saying that Thor exists. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about this some more because um, this is the, you know, we let's get to the heart of what the milieu is. Um the books are Janissaries, Tran, uh, Lord of Janissaries, and now Mamelukes. I believe that's the series. Um, and the uh, they're on this planet. It's Tran, and it's Clan and Crown. Clan and Crown. And the the I, th- I guess Tran is um, a a double book, right? It's a yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Any yeah. Go the original ahead, novels. The original novels were were. Sure, they were novels for the for the for the period in which they were written, the seventies and the eighties. They were shorter uh, and and very very good. Um, I understand that one of the reasons these books were written was because of the conversation that Jim Bain had with Jerry, uh, something along the lines of Jim challenging Jerry to tell a story which explained why we were being visited by UFOs, but nobody knew it. (laughs) So Jerry's response was, well, that's because they're kidnapping people they need to go serve in the Galactic Empire, more or less. Um, Yes. So there's two two big stories sort of overarching this. One is the Confederation and what's going on there, and the other is this planet. Yeah. Um, what explain those? I guess. Well, so in terms of yeah, in terms of what happens in Janissaries is uh, you know they have these mercenaries for the United States operating in Africa fighting against Cubans and they're about to be wiped out and they get picked up by a flying saucer. Um, if that's not dramatic enough for you, I'm not sure what kind of opening works for you. But <laughs> then they're they are given the options of either. Uh, working um, or becoming, you know, lab animals. So they choose to work, and so they're taken by this race called the Shalnuxes to this planet called Tran, and they're told uh, to grow these drugs. Now, they have modern weapons, and the locals have been uh, reduced to um, medieval-era technological status, so obviously a major uh, overmatch uh, uh, with them. And so, as long as that person holds out, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so, th- then they go to work. But then um, there's a mutiny, and Rick is put out. And then the rest of the novel is how he gets back into place. But along the way, he also unravels the mystery of why the planet is still in this uh, primitive state, and that sets up the larger issue of this uh, galactic confederation. Because the Shalnuxes are doing all this undercover. Basically, it's illegal what they're doing. And uh, so he unravels not only the mystery of what's happening on Tran, he starts to unravel the mystery of what is happening across the Galactic Empire. And it turns out that humans are not slaves just on Tran. They're slaves across this entire confederation. Um, but they're doing all the administrative works, hence the name uh, Janissaries. And now, uh, as we take a closer look at the the nature and the politics of the Galactic uh, Confederation, uh, some things are are uh, fraying at the seams, and this poses some serious challenges not only to Rick but but 
potentially to all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And Janissaries were, in historical terms, they were um, these uh, these uh, slaves that worked in the Ottoman Empire. The... Historically, Janissaries were um, warrior slaves of the of the Turkish. They were they were a Turkish Ottoman uh, institution that, in some ways, outlived the the uh, the empire itself. Um, the I think one of the things that that needs to be uh, understood in going everywhere that I think Jerry was going with this motif is that. In historical experience here on Earth, the Janissaries started out. They were they were the children of uh, Christians uh, in the in the uh, empire who were taken as tribute, um, and they were raised as as uh, Muslims uh, as uh, celibate slave soldiers of the of the uh, the emperor of the of the sultan, um, and. Eventually, they succumbed to Praetorianism. They began uh, taking child, taking wives, having children, and eventually they they became uh, a corrupt uh, institution. The Mamelukes were sort of Janissaries, Egyptian edition. Uh, they they were exactly the same sort of mechanism in a way they were slave soldiers, and they too became politicized, became rulers in their own right, and they lasted until uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so this is this is an institution that uh, spanned probably a thousand fourteen hundred years uh, before it finally uh, collapsed or was replaced. And in essence, the servants of the human servants of the Confederation are its Janissaries, which is where the original title came from. Um, the, I think that Jerry's decision to call this book Mamelukes uh, is a very clear indication of where he was planning on taking the basic storyline with the with the Confederation. Um, because while we are looking at the humans on Tran as the Mamelukes in question, I really think that he sees Inspector Agrizal and and his uh, uh, henchmen in the Galact in, in the Confederation. Check me if I'm wrong with this, Phil, but I think he really sees them as sort of the ultimate Mamelukes uh, in this process. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so you see uh, not only Agzaral, but uh, Jen Hay and others. Uh, uh, Jen Hay is like the most uh, wild of all of them who's part of the Free Stars movement, uh, which, you know, if, if someone had actually heard her say it beyond uh, his walls, she would be, you know, uh, disemboweled. Um, yeah. So there, there are some, you know, there's, there's – uh, Definitely some factionalism within those humans. There are those who are very loyal. We see this less, where he is, he is um, um, constantly struggling with the desire to be loyal because he was essentially bred to be loyal. But he also has his own interests, and he probably sees the the confederation going against them. 
Uh, then we have Genhei, who she wants to free the stars. And then you have Agzarel, who's trying to play all ends against the middle and survive uh, and yeah. ensure humanity's survival. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because Earth, uh, Earth's fate is in the balance, ultimately, in all of this. Yeah, Earth is Earth is the source of what they call the wild humans. Every so often, they they interpose that uh, they, they they inject genetic material from Earth into their galactic population of humans, um, and unfortunately, um, the wild humans uh, pose a problem. Uh, for the Confederation in a lot of ways, including the fact that we are gradually working our ways towards the tech level that would qualify us for membership uh, in the Confederation. And so what happens if Earth becomes a member state of the Confederation? What happens to their slave soldiers who are also human? Um, Not only that, but the Confederation... The Confederation exists in large part because you have, a, and I think we actually specifically addressed this at one point uh, in, in Mamelukes, it exists because the various member states all have the, a technology level that can kill planets with no problem at all. So the Confederation exists as a, as a mechanism, a platform on which they can interact without resorting to those sorts of, of, uh, of warlike uh, confrontations. Um, and in a sense, a lot of the Janissaries see this as, um, as, as a sacred charge. I think this is partly where Les is coming from, in that they have kept the peace, they have preserved this, this uh, uh, interstellar community, without its becoming destructive, mutually destructive. One of the things that this requires, though, is a degree of stability. And humans, wild humans especially, are seen as a destabilizing element. Uh, We're fractious, we, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a debate going on in the Confederacy over whether or not Earth can be allowed to continue to exist, or at least the humans on it can. And that is what has gotten uh, Agzral uh, uh, involved in the uh, in supporting uh, Rick Galloway and his folks on Tran as sort of an insurance policy if Earth gets taken out. In the earlier books... The, the insurance policy is if Earth goes down, uh, you guys will sit over here. You'll have like 600 years. One of the things I don't think Phil mentioned when he was talking about Tran, Tran is a planet in a trinary star system. And it's only about every 600 years that the climate is right to grow the particular drug that uh, that they're there to produce for the Shonuxus. Um And... And that's called uh, a madweed. Um, the the plant is madweed, and the period in which it can be grown is called the time. The and time. Uh, yes, well, and you have ice caps melting, and you have water rising, you have disease, you have migrations of peoples, uh, etc. It's a real mess. I think, Phil. I think that's what you were talking about when you were commenting on Tran not being a very nice place to live sometimes. <laughs> 
Yeah, the life expectancy on Tran is uh, not near that of, of, of our own. And, and, you know, in addition to the fact that you have primitive status, like you say, the trinary system, every 600 years, most of the uh, population is wiped out. Well, and the one of, one of the other little features here is that when Rick gets to Tran and he starts figuring stuff out, he can, he can identify the waves of mercenaries that were brought in to grow the drugs up until about the last 1,200 years because they're not there anymore. Uh, those cultures, whoever they were, aren't there anymore. Um, and there are uh, many legends on Tran about sky fire and the sky gods and dealing with the sky gods is always a bad thing uh, because ultimately they they destroy the people they deal with, et cetera, et cetera. And Rick figures out that what they've been doing is using kinetic strikes or nukes or whatever to finish to 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 polish off their mercenaries if those mercenaries might destabilize might might bring technology to tran so by the time you get into the gunpowder era, any mercenaries they're bringing in from in there they're taking out from orbit after they're done uh which leaves Rick with an interesting bunch of problems on his, on his plate. How does he grow the madweed? Uh, how does he build the tech that he needs to control the area he needs to control when he starts running out of ammunition for his 20th century weapons? Uh, and how does he do all that without painting a great big target on him and everybody he cares about uh, to be wiped out when the end of the uh, madweed season is upon them? Um it is, from a storytelling perspective, it is a masterful mix of oh my gods uh, that will let you do horrible things to your characters, um, driving the story. Uh, yeah. Well, there um, they the technology level is. You say in the book, it's it's. Late medieval, early Renaissance, uh, perhaps uh, like Venice. Yeah, except that except that it is Venice without gunpowder. Um, the it, before Rick turns up, all weapons on the planet are basically uh, muscle powered or torsion powered. Um, there's no uh, there's no gunpowder. Um, tactics are, uh, tactics are rudimentary. <laughs> I guess that would be fair. Um, so yeah, basically Tran, medieval society on most, most of the planet. And so the, the military yeah. actions reflect that and, you know, or it should be the other way around. The politics reflect the military, uh, capabilities, which are, uh, than you know, arist uh, aristocratic and um, muscle powered. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. There, there are two basic. Um, okay, heavy cavalry dominates the battlefield. Okay, but there are two different types of heavy cavalry available at this time. Uh, uh, Drantos, the 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 kingdom that Rick winds up in is very much maybe 12th century 
uh, uh, Europe, uh, Western Europe. There's also a Roman Empire, which is very much, uh, uh, it's almost, it's, it's almost Byzantine in terms of the, um, the, the, uh, the, um, it's dominated by cavalry. They don't use infantry a whole lot, but it, the, the Roman empire on Tran is far and away, uh, the best organized, uh, administratively, and they are not feudal in the sense of having an aristocracy that spends all its time training and so forth to fight a war, which is the way that it works in, in, in Drentos. Um, so it's an interesting juxtaposition of two different social mechanisms that produce similar field armies, uh, but with the difference that the Romans have the sophisticated, civilized uh, engineering and institutional memory that I think Drantos lacks uh, in in a lot of ways. That was part one of a multi-part interview with Philip Pornell and David Weber discussing Mamelukes by Jerry Pornell. Part two will be available on next week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Hillary Indrakashi in Kadashwara Tower. City of Old Chicago, Sol System, Salarian League. This is the reason Irene and I needed someone like you, Natsuko, Dowd Alfanidahi said in a tone of profound satisfaction. We wouldn't have had a clue how to find something like this. Well, don't go assuming we've really found what we all think we've found, Lieutenant Colonel Okiku replied. Alfanudahi stood looking over her shoulder as she sat at one of the desks in the office which had become their private HQ. Now she waved one hand at the display in front of her. We've got plenty of evidence of corruption on all these people, but God knows there's always corruption, tons of it here in Saul. So it's still entirely possible we're seeing connections that don't exist, or connections that do exist, but aren't the ones we think they are at any rate. Understood. Alphanidahi nodded. Same thing happens on our side of the shop. One of the things that's hardest to avoid, and one of the things that's biting the Navy on the butt right now, for that matter, 
is mirror imaging, interpreting what the other fellow's doing through the lens of how you'd do it. If their operating assumptions are different, their decisions and actions are going to be different too, and it's hard to check your own fundamental concepts at the door. There are some similarities with that, Okiku acknowledged. It's a little bit different from a cop's perspective, though. It's not so much our fundamental operational concepts as it is our effort to assess someone else's motivations when we can't just open a window and peek inside their heads. We know a lot about what these people are doing now. What we have to be careful about is assuming we know why they're doing it. And who they're doing it for, Bryce Tarkovsky put in sourly. Alfano Dahi looked at him, and the tall Marine, another charter member of the group Okiku had dubbed the Ghost Hunters, shrugged. Like Natsuko says, there's so much normal garden variety corruption that demonstrating exactly who's paying off whom and for what is the kind of challenge that would make Sisyphus weep. Alfano Dahi grinned and shook his head. Tarkovsky delighted in dredging up obscure references to ancient old earth legends. Partly that was because he genuinely loved them and had spent years studying them. But Alfano Dahi suspected his interest had begun as a deliberate response to the stereotypical view of Marines. Personally, Alfano Dahi had never believed the stereotype. He knew at least a dozen Marines who could so read. Why, some of them could even write. Bryce is right, Okiku said. That's why this is like chasing ghosts. And don't forget we have to be able to demonstrate whatever we finally do find well enough to convince someone else, not just to our own satisfaction. Someone who won't want to be convinced the way we do. And someone who will quite possibly have his own reasons to not want any rocks turned over, even if he thinks we may be onto something, or especially because he thinks we may, Alphanodahi agreed. He sat back in his own chair and puffed his cheeks, less cheerful than he'd been a moment before, but that didn't mean they hadn't made a lot of progress. Simeon Gaddis's outcasts had crunched their way through exabytes of reports, contacts, security camera video, social media, travel patterns, bank accounts, cash transactions, and intercepted and decrypted personal conversations and correspondence. They still didn't know exactly what he had them looking for, although there was no way to keep his personal cybernauts from speculating, probably with a high degree of accuracy, about what he was after. As the correlations began to pile up, Gaddis had opened an official investigation into corruption within the gendarmerie, and wherever it might lead in the federal government generally. It wasn't the first time he'd gone a round or two with that Goliath, so no one was especially surprised by it. Cynically amused by its futility, perhaps, but not surprised. Under cover of that investigation, however, he'd directed a small army of gendarmes into the investigation without giving them the slightest hint of what they were really looking for, and the outcasts had tapped into the flood of information that army had turned up. Armed with all that data, their accomplishments dwarfed anything Alphanudahi and Irene Teague might have conceivably achieved on their own. To date, the ghost hunters had identified almost a dozen individuals, exclusive of Raimund Nius, who they strongly suspected were tools of what Lupe Blanton had christened the other guys. They were certain Nius belonged on that list, but so far they'd been unable to tie him to anyone else which had led both Blanton and Wang Jinghuan to fundamentally reassess their estimate of Nius's intelligence, or more specifically, their estimate of his lack thereof. They'd had better luck in a few other cases, however, and he reached over Okiku's shoulder to indicate one of the names on her list. 
I think we need to be taking an even closer look at this one, he said, and she tapped the name to open the database associated with it. Miss Bolton, she murmured. I can see why you're interested in her, Dowd. What did you have in mind? Well, he said, we've linked her to two of the other people on our list. If there's anything to the outcast's suggestion that she's also linked to Lawton, we need to nail that down, for more than one reason. Tarkovsky had straightened in his chair at the sound of Bolton's name. Now he stood and walked around to join Alphanadahi, and his expression was unhappy. I don't disagree with you, he said. I wish I could, but I don't. Alphanadahi rested one hand lightly on the Marine's shoulder, but Okiku only shook her head. Probably because she was a cop at heart, the captain thought. She drew a sharp line between good guys and bad guys, and anyone who found himself on the wrong side of that line was a target to be taken down as expeditiously and completely as possible. The way she saw it, if someone she'd thought was a friend turned out to be a bad guy, then he'd never been quite as much a friend as the colonel had thought he was. Intellectually, Alphanodahi agreed with her, and he knew Tarkovsky did too. But Colonel Timothy Lawton had been Bryce Tarkovsky's colleague and personal friend for over 15 T years. In fact, he'd been on Tarkovsky's shortlist of potential recruits to the cause, until the outcasts turned up his connection, his possible connection, to Shafika Bolton. There was no doubt that Lawton was in a relationship with Bolton, although the precise nature of that relationship had yet to be defined. It appeared to be purely social and not terribly close, but the number of peripheral and coincidental contacts between them was statistically improbable. And the outcast's algorithms insisted that Shafika Bolton was definitely linked to two other individuals, a Navy captain and a diplomat. They were almost certain were working for the other guys. I have to say, she's got the classic earmarks of a handler, Okiku said after a moment as she scrolled through the database. I might be less suspicious if her contacts with both Nye and Salazar hadn't spiked the way they have. There's no social or business reason for her to be running into the two of them as much as she has, and the frequency of contacts is still trending upward. That's a little thin, Natsuko. Tarkovsky wasn't arguing so much as playing devil's advocate, Alphanadahi thought. That's how these things work, Bryce, she said. You pick at it until you find a thread you can unravel, and it's usually something small that starts the process. But look at this. She highlighted a section of the data. Over the last two T years, the frequency of her contacts with Nye's gone up almost 18%, and most of that increase has occurred since Bing got himself blown away at New Tuscany last October. In fact, over half of it's occurred in the last six months. But his transactions are actually down 7% over that same time period. Tarkovsky nodded. Bolton, one of the senior partners of Nunez, Poldak, Bolton, and Huang, was a financial advisor, and a very good one, judging by her client list and their success rates. Stefanos Nye, a senior policy analyst in Inokenti Kolokoltsov's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, was one of those clients, but he'd never been a heavy investor. He had lucrative arrangements with several well-heeled lobbyists, and his bank balance was more than comfortable but he'd always tended to splash around in the shallows of the waters Bolton routinely navigated. Statistically, she spent a disproportionate amount of her time with such a relatively modest player. She always had, actually, although the disproportion had been far smaller up until about the time Haven resumed hostilities with Manticore. 
If there'd been some sort of personal relationship between them, the uptick probably wouldn't have been noticeable at all. But outside their meetings to discuss possible financial opportunities, they had no relationship the outcasts could discover. Only the closest scrutiny could have picked that discrepancy out of the hundreds of clients with whom Bolton met on a regular or semi-regular basis, but it was definitely there. Whether it was truly significant was another matter, but the fact that Nye's policy positions had steadily hardened against Manticore, almost in tandem with Ryman Nias's reports to Uptomskoy, suggested that it was. Then there was Captain Mardiola Salazar, one of Fleet Admiral Evangeline Bernard's staffers in the Office of Strategy and Planning. She had no business relationship with Bolton at all, and her work schedule at S&P had become steeply more demanding as the confrontation with Manticore progressed from simply adversarial to disastrous. Despite the way that cut into her personal free time, however, she and Bolton kept running into one another in social settings. The uptick there was almost 23% in just the past two months, and Al-Fanudahi's sources indicated Salazar had been one of the lead planners for Operation Buccaneer. Of course, Al-Fanudahi wasn't supposed to know Buccaneer even existed, far less who'd been tasked with putting it together. But he was in intelligence, and recent events had pretty thoroughly validated warnings he'd issued over the years about events in the Haven sector. As a result, the people at Strategy and Planning were actually talking to him these days. How much attention they paid him was debatable, but at least they were asking questions. The nature of those questions had enabled him to piece together a depressingly good picture of the thinking, such as it was, behind Buccaneer, and it was evident Salazar's contributions had strongly shaped the operations plan. In fact, she'd been an early, if not simply the earliest, proponent of the Partheon option. And then there was Timothy Lawton, the question mark of the moment. Like Bryce Tarkovsky, he worked for Brigadier Meindert Osterhout, the CO of Marine Intelligence under Admiral Karl Heinz Timar's nominal command as part of the Office of Naval Intelligence. He'd spent 12 T years seconded to frontier security, during which he'd acquired a deep familiarity with the complexities of the protectorates and the fringe in general, and Osterhout had come to rely on that familiarity. He was smart, hardworking, and insightful. He also played one hell of a poker game, as Tarkovsky had learned the hard way. Aside from an occasional and profitable foray at the poker table, however, he'd always been a bit standoffish. He and Tarkovsky liked one another and had considered each other friends for a long time, but they'd never built the sort of close relationship Tarkovsky and Alfanodahi enjoyed, which might turn out to have been fortunate under the circumstances. Because like Salazar, Lawton had been bumping into Bolton quite a bit recently. And unlike Salazar, he'd had no contact at all with her prior to about 10 T months ago, which was about the time his analysis of events in the fringe, not simply in the Talbot quadrant, but much more broadly, had begun suggesting an increasingly militant and expansionist attitude on Manticore's part. Under the circumstances, Inviting him to become another ghost hunter might have had negative consequences for all concerned. The outcasts can't get a lot closer to Bolton, Dowd, Okiku said now. They're still digging into her financials, and they're bird-dogging all of her electronic communications to us. Anybody as smart as these people isn't going to do a lot electronically, though. If she's what we think she is, that's the reason she's meeting with people personally. So, unless we want to go hands-on, we're not likely to get beyond the suggestive stage. 
Mind you, Simeon and I would both be confident enough to ask for warrants on the basis of what we've already got, except that we can't ask for warrants without going public with what we suspect. What do you mean by hands-on? Alfanudahi asked. One possibility is to feed at least one of these people something we figure the other guys are going to want, or that they think they could use. Then we see if they go running to Bolton. If they do, and if the other guys act on whatever we gave them, then I think we've proved there's a direct link. If we're talking about some kind of vast interstellar conspiracy, that'd take a lot of time we may not have, Alfanodahi pointed out. Our suspect would have to get the information to Bolton, and then Bolton would have to get it to her superiors through whatever chain of communications they use, and her superiors would have to act on it and then send their new orders back down the same chain. I don't think we've got that kind of time. And even if we did, God only knows how many more people would get killed while we waited. Okiku said that was one possibility, Dowd, Tarkovsky pointed out. I'm not sure it's the one she actually had in mind, though. Something about his tone made Alfanodahi look at him sharply, and the Marine gave him a crooked smile. Then he looked down as Okiku looked up over her shoulder. You were thinking about something a little more proactive, weren't you? He asked. Well, she replied, you're right about how badly time constraints would work against the planted information approach, Dowd. If the Navy's really going ahead with Buccaneer, it's the kind of escalation that's likely to provoke a painful response from the Mantis. The kind of response that gets a lot of people killed. And even if that weren't the case, just think about how much damage Buccaneer is going to do. Physical damage, I mean, much less the way it's likely to poison public opinion in the verge and fringe against the League for decades to come. If we're going to accomplish anything inside that time loop, it may be time for some of that proactiveness Bryce is talking about. How? One possibility is to take his original suggestion, grab one of these people, like Bolton maybe, and sweat them. It has the drawback that without a warrant, it's strictly illegal and morally questionable. And if it turns out we're wrong about whoever we grab, we end up facing what you might call a quandary. Do we assume we're wrong about everything and turn her loose with apologies? Or do we assume we were wrong about her, not about the other guys in general, in which case we can't turn her loose, which means we have to do something else with her? Alfanodahi's jaw tightened, but he had to respect her willingness to face the implications, and he nodded in unhappy understanding. And another possibility is for us to present a threat they have to honor, something to make them react in a short time frame, something we can see and track. Alfanodahi's nostrils flared. You mean present them with someone they'd see as a threat, he said, his tone flat. That may be our only option, Dowd, Tarkovsky said. There's only so far we can go without either directly questioning a suspect or trying to manipulate one of them into giving himself away. If you can think of another way to do that, I'm all ears. But if you can't... His voice trailed off and he shrugged. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. 
and cerulean fireworks in a pink Martian sky to celebrate the end of terraforming and the founding of Honor Harrington University in the Olympus Mons foothills. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Philip Pornell and David Weber, who have completed Jerry Pornell's most excellent novel in the Janissary series, Mamelukes. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 